I want to be as wealthy as Beyonce, but I can neither sing nor dance. So, you know, I'm never going to be Beyonce, but Beyonce is never going to be me. Beyonce could not step into a courtroom and try, you know, a case and get a $12 million verdict in, you know, Jefferson County, Alabama. It's not going to happen. That's Sarah Williams, trial coach, adjunct professor, and renowned trial attorney at Alexander Shannara Trial Attorneys. I'm a firm believer in what is for me is for me. I'm at a point now where I don't even know how to be anyone else, you know? It's so uncomfortable to have to pretend, and I don't think you perform as well when you pretend. I'm Michael Mogul, founder and CEO of Crisp Video, the nation's number one law firm growth company. I've built my business through practice, not theory. Crisp started with just $500 to my name and has grown to over eight figures in revenue over the last few years, earning a spot on the Inc. 500 list of the fastest growing private companies in America. Our approach has been to take everything we've learned about generating massive growth within our own organization and help the country's most ambitious and committed law firm owners do the same for theirs. In each episode of this podcast, I sit down with innovative market leaders from the legal industry and beyond to learn from those who thrive in the face of adversity, challenge the status quo, and define what it means to be a true game changer. I sat down with Sarah Williams to discuss what separates good trial lawyers from the great ones, what it takes to overcome obstacles related to race and gender, and how embracing your authentic self can make you a better leader. Everything is hard, right? You know, work is hard, and but I think it is harder when you're going in opposition to what you truly want. That's coming up on the Game Changing Attorney Podcast. Sarah Williams has honed her craft as an award-winning trial attorney who is an unstoppable force in the courtroom. She also plays a pivotal role in one of the largest and most well-known plaintiff's firms in the country. That said, we all walk before we run, and I wanted to know where Sarah's story began. So I um, am an army brat, and I um, have always had the idea that I just, I, I grew up as an army brat, I grew up, my mom was a secretary, my dad was in the military, and then when he got out, did administrative work. And so I always knew I didn't want to be like poor, but I, I didn't, I will tell you, I did not really have a very focused intent on being a lawyer. I, I loved writing, I loved reading, I majored in English at Florida State. I knew I didn't want to teach because at that time I didn't really like kids that much. And so my counselor said, well, you know, for someone who reads like you do and and can write as well as you do, you should consider law school. And it really was not until I got into law school and initially, you know, being from Florida State, I have I'm the youngest. I have two older brothers. I was a tomboy. My goal in attending law school was to eventually become a sports agent. And so I um, applied to Marquette and I applied to Tulane because they both had sports agent certifications, got into both, got scholarships to both, almost went to Marquette. And then they told me that when it snows, you have to go to class in tunnels and I'm from Florida. And so I rejected that notion. And then um, I just happened to be at a law school forum and um, some of the recruiters from Cumberland grabbed me literally and pulled me over and gave me a waiver for an application fee. And I had, you know, Birmingham, Alabama was nowhere on my radar. Um, But I applied and then I visited and fell in love with the campus. And so when I attended Cumberland is really when I, I feel like I found myself in terms of a journey. I tried out 
I did the freshman trial competition at the request of my mentor and really found my niche. Like I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do, but I knew I wanted to try cases. And that idea has kind of led my career and informed my decision-making since graduating from law school. And then, you know, after working at a few defense firms, I realized that didn't make me happy. And so I've now been with Alexander Shannara trial attorneys. I've been with Alexander Shannara for seven years. I joined in 2013 when he started building his litigation group. And so I've never been anywhere as long and I have never been as happier in my practice um, than I am here. Now, you know, I mean, Alex was was on the podcast the first season. He was one of the first guests we had. Um, How did the two of you meet? (laughs) So... You all have met Alex when he, like, his commercials are more sophisticated. Back when I was trying cases against his firm, he was jumping off buildings in squirrel suits <laughs> during the Super Bowl commercials. And so our firm, the firm I worked with, which was an insurance defense firm, did primarily state farm car wreck defense. And so we tried a ton of cases against um the young lawyers that Alex had hired who had started trying cases and they had all graduated from Cumberland. So we were all familiar with them. And he actually hired one of my partners um, while I was on maternity leave. And so I get back from maternity leave and then Brandon takes out um, and joins Alex's firm. And then one day Brandon called me, I was on on a deposition somewhere and he said, can you just stop by and meet Alex? I want you to meet him. And so one random day in May of 2013, I went to his little office back then and met with him. And it was so weird. Like we immediately hit it off. Like we had a three hour conversation. I can't even call it an interview. It was weird. It's almost like, like we were meant to be friends and he offered me a job, you know, that day. And I decided that day that I was going to leave my firm Um, after working out some details and and join his. It was an interesting, when you think back on your life as like those moments that are pivotal in your career, like that day was, is definitely one of them for me. Yeah. And it it seems that you two have always, I mean, I don't know if this has always been the case, but I've always been in very strong alignment. And it's interesting just because you know, you having a very strong trial background, being so trial focused, and Alex being very much focused on the business of law as well. It's just an interesting partnership, if you will. It is. We, um, Although I tell him all the time, he is an amazing storyteller. Uh, I think you know most trial lawyers have the thing that makes them good trial lawyers is a natural ability, but also training. And I think if Alex had had the training, he would have been a phenomenal trial attorney. I tell him that all the time. I mean, you see how dynamic he is when when he speaks at events. But we also are aligned in terms of our thoughts about work ethic and um, our thoughts about business and family. And so we just we, we are we have become the best of friends. And he he is Uncle Alex at, at my house to my daughter. And we're kind of like an odd pair, but. It works. Now, at this point, you've trained hundreds of trial lawyers and you yourself, I mean, you've recovered over $30 million in verdicts and settlements and so on. What is the biggest difference that you've seen between the good versus the great trial lawyers? So I think the thing that differentiates a good trial lawyer from a great trial lawyer is the willingness to 
do things and try cases in a way that goes against the grain of how we've been trained. My trial team coach used to tell us all the time, the number one thing that you have to get over in terms of training as a trial lawyer is the thing you have to do to become a trial lawyer, and that is go to law school. Um, Because most law schools do not prepare you to just be a regular person and talk to people as you were before you, you know, became a lawyer. I think people who try cases tend to talk at juries instead of talking with juries. And so I think those who flip the switch, as I would say, from good to great, really know themselves, figure out who they are, and then they are themselves in front of a jury, whoever that is. And I think authenticity resonates with juries and and just being normal resonates with juries more so than any other flashy trial advocacy technique. The next thing I want to go into, and I mean, I think you will appreciate this, but this is something I've always admired about you in the sense that you've been, I mean, every time I speak with you, you're always a very positive person. You're always a very happy person. But I imagine that you experience a number of challenges. I mean, one, being a female attorney, but also a woman of color. Like, I mean, you could speak to what were some of the barriers or challenges you experienced on the way to, let's say, getting to where you are today? It was difficult. I think one of the the toughest aspects of practicing in the South is for some reason, plaintiff's firms here do not hire minority attorneys a ton. Our bar is not very diverse. And so coming out of law school, you know, luckily the defense firms, you know, have a lot of pressure from corporate clients to diversify their teams. So that was always a struggle. But I will tell you that the The primary struggle is in terms of identity. It is in not being concerned about sounding like a Black woman or being perceived as the angry Black woman. Now, I am, you're right, I have a naturally kind of sunny disposition, but, you know, not always. And in having direct conversations, there are always those prejudices that you have to um, deal with and they can be internalized. And I will tell you, I had them internalized. Um, And when I went to law school, it was the first time um, when I started practicing with, with my trial coach, who's a judge here in Alabama, who you know, I credit with creating an environment that made me feel safe enough to be myself without worrying about, you know, let me be a little timid because I don't want them to think I'm, you know, mad or, you know, let me hide my emotion because I don't want them to perceive me this way. Or even when it comes to my voice, like if you, if this interview were being conducted in 2002, I I would be speaking to you completely different. And it was because, you know, and I think most black professionals my age have been taught to have, you know, to code switch. You have one voice for white folks and and for the world. And then when we're in our own circle, you have another voice. And, And those are the things that I think hold us back because I see it even, you know, in our practice. Like if I can't get to know the real you, then I'm hesitant to hire you. You know, if if a jury thinks that you are not being authentic, then they don't connect with you. And so those were barriers for me. It's that things that we just inherited that really um, were ingrained. And I was just, you know, lucky enough to be in a situation and in an environment where I was made to feel like my voice was valued. And so 
you know, my natural speaking voice was able to be developed. And that has that has helped me throughout my career to advance because I am very comfortable with myself. And it seems like they're not teaching this at most law schools. I mean, in, in your experience, you, you talk about the fact that you were fortunate to have the right coach or mentor, but not everybody does. Like what, what advice would you give to them? That's tough, you know, because I think that like you have to remember folks who are my age, right? Their parents are children of the civil rights movement. And so I think a lot of the way we deal with things is inherited. It's inherited trauma. And so I think that people tend to find mentors who are who are successful, but who are not necessarily living authentically when they are doing business. So I I just, my advice to folks is to really find someone who you can be vulnerable with. And that's the person who can help guide you to, you know, that path of feeling comfortable being yourself and using your own voice. It's difficult. There are certain trial advocacy programs throughout the country, but I think that what we have found and what we're trying to work towards is minority students shy away from them because of that thing, you know, it is, I don't think I can be myself in that atmosphere. And I'm going to have to spend a lot of time with these people, right? I mean, sometimes I spend more time with my students during the week than my family. And I don't want to spend that much time with a group that I don't feel like I can be myself with. And so it's really, you know, being brave enough to step in there. And I think once you step in there, you see like, oh, I can be myself in this environment. But you kind of just have to do that work a little bit on your own. Sarah often speaks about the importance of developing confidence both in and out of the courtroom. I asked her to elaborate on how she developed her own confidence. Here is my theory on confidence. And I'm going to have I'm going to give you a preview to my next video shoot. I've got y'all coming in next week and I've written about about this particular subject because I think it's important. I think that the idea that women professionals are not confident is a myth. So I was always confident in myself. I knew I was smart. I knew I was smarter than most of the people in my class. I knew I was good at the things that I liked to do and that I I played the flute. I played the piano, you know, like for one moment, for one year, I was the best power forward in, um, in our division in Germany. So like when I decide to do something, I excel at it. And so I think what happens though, is as girls, what we learn growing up is the outwardly display of confidence is frowned upon, right? So you see a confident woman walk in and you're like, who does she think she is, right? Or you you tell someone about something that you did and they're like, oh, you think you're this, you think you're that. You know, we're not encouraged to brag on ourselves. And so I think all of us eventually internalize, like I'm confident in my own head, but I have understood that society doesn't like me expressing that. So for me, it was more so... Once I think you are comfortable with who you are and you make the decision, I made the decision in law school um, because I won't I wouldn't say like if you were to meet people that went to high school with me, like I didn't talk my entire 10th grade year. So, I mean, there are folks who thought I was like a deaf person (laughs) because I was so shy and just so internalized. 
because I had learned like if I am this kind of outgoing, outwardly confident person, people don't expect that. Like how dare this heavyset Black woman walk through this world being confident, right? That's not what we expect and and that's not what the world shows us. And I think some of it is you just got to give the middle finger to the world. And, and that's just where I am in life. I am, you know, just done with being a person who people expect me to be. I'm going to be myself. And that's either going to be something that's receptive to you or something that is not receptive to you. And what I've just happened to learn is people like me. And so I think that that's it. I think it's just deciding you are going to outwardly be who you know you are on the inside. And I believe so. You shared a story a while back, I think, with your daughter Malone. And, you know, we were talking about society, and, and you're right. It, it seems like society and even the school systems really don't properly, let's say, prepare future leaders, if you will. If, if you could talk about, like, I guess the conversation you had with your daughter's teacher. Yeah. So <laughs> if any of you have a child in daycare, you all know how expensive it is. But, and I have been more acutely aware of this since becoming a parent. I walked into her daycare class and her teacher had just told this little boy's parents that he um, was such a great leader that day. And then she came over to me as I was packing up Malone's stuff. And she said, you know, I need to talk to you about Malone. And I was like, oh, gosh, you know, what has my child done? And she said, you know, she's not disrespectful, but there's just. And she kind of fumbled around and she said, she's just, she's just very direct and she can be, you know, bossy. And I was like, eh, let me stop you right there. As long as she's not being disrespectful. I asked her, I said, is she being disrespectful? She said, no. I said, is she being mean to her classmates? She said, no. She's just very direct and she likes to tell them what to do. And I was like, yeah, I mean, I'm her mama. Uh, and, you know, Malone has, I have, I have been very intentional about, so since she was an infant, she has been coming to the law school with me uh, and she's seen me teach. So she's come to practices. She's come to class. She has a desk right now in my office um, because I believe it's important for her to feel comfortable in spaces like this. I didn't grow up in a space like this. You know, she thinks the penthouse at our office belongs to her and I'm comfortable with her feeling that way. Um, and so with this woman, it really bothered me because I had been so intentional about the experiences she had. And I said, listen, I'm not paying y'all to essentially teach her spirit out of her. As long as she's not being disrespectful, you know, I don't expect you to use words like bossy around her. It later got back to me that this this lady, she had strong feelings about what I had said. And I just eventually just moved Malone to a different school because I just, again, I don't want her to grow up internalizing her confidence. You know, I want her to, to be comfortable being externally confident because I mean, those are the the folks who are successful are confident on the outside. Yeah. And and it seems that we either learn this at an early age or most people, I think they, they struggle with this until much later in life. And at that point, they almost start to have like this identity crisis. But as you talk a lot about authenticity, I mean, I don't know how far Brene Brown we have to go on this, but that served you well. I mean, you, you've given me countless examples of that. And, and so for the people that are listening to this podcast that may be wondering, they're saying, well, 
I don't know about my authentic self. Let's say they're either, you know, they're working as an attorney at another law firm or they're trying to model what another firm is doing and they worry that if they kind of step into that authenticity, it could perhaps affect them negatively. Yeah, I just, I'm a firm believer in what is for me is for me. And I, I'm at a point now where like, I don't even know how to be anyone else. You know, um, it's so uncomfortable to have to pretend. And it, to me, it's more stressful to have to pretend. And I don't think you perform as well when you pretend, you know, you have to find the thing that you are really, really good at. Alex and I were having a conversation the other day and we were, we've been working on signing this death case And he said to the client, I am not a good trial lawyer, but Sarah is. I am a phenomenal business person. I am great when it comes to talking to clients. I will keep you updated. I will make sure you're happy. And I will make sure this case is properly funded and that Sarah can go out and hire the best experts that she needs to hire. I will ensure you that, you know, my law firm remains solvent. But I think, you know, knowing what you are good at and being comfortable in that and being grounded in what your thing is, it makes things so much easier. It makes day-to-day decisions easier. You know, it's almost like, is it Steve Jobs who talks about, um, that has the wardrobe, that's the exact same thing. You know, so for me, when it comes to reducing decision-making, I know which cases that I'm going to take. I know what types of cases I'm good at trying. I know what is not in my wheelhouse. You know, I know when making day-to-day decisions and making career decisions. So it was easy for me to decide to come to this firm because I knew I was coming here to try cases. It was easy for me to decide to join the firm I joined right, right out of law school because I knew I was going to learn to try cases and I may not have been there forever, right? Because you want to develop skills. You don't have to stay in the same place forever, but it's because I was grounded in in who I was. You know, there are some things that I'm not good at. You want like a 50 page brief written. It's going to take me some time to do it. Like there is someone else who is better at that. You want a 30 B6 cross-examined and torn to shreds. I'm your girl. And so I think when people stop trying to be, you know, there are so many people who call Alex and they're like, I'm going to do exactly what you did. And so we'll drive through Mississippi and we see these billboards and it's like, that's not your thing, man. And you just wasted a whole bunch of money trying to be someone else versus spending time figuring out who you are and then excelling at that thing. Yeah. You know, we, we talk a lot about ambition versus commitment on the podcast. And I think you may have just defined it in the sense that it's very difficult, if not impossible, to fully commit to something, at least for the long term, unless that's in true alignment with, with who you are. Now, I think ambition wise, who doesn't want to grow their law firm? Who doesn't want to grow career wise? Who doesn't want to you know be a great litigator? All these different things. But I guess you're arguing that if that's not your unique strength, perhaps that's not where you should be devoting your time and energy. Absolutely. And and everything is hard, right? You know, work is hard. and But I think it is harder when you're going in opposition to what you truly want. But I think the problem is people spend more time looking at what everyone else is doing and then thinking about what it is they truly desire. Like We've become this society of just, you know, 
we're just so voyeuristic, right? It's like, okay, Alex has a new Escalade. How do you get the new Escalade? It must be because he's doing X, right? It's like we want things and we want a lifestyle. And so we think we have to emulate whoever that person is that has that lifestyle. Listen, I want to be as wealthy as Beyonce, but I can neither sing nor dance. And unfortunately, Malone has inherited my lack of rhythm. So, you know, I'm never going to be Beyonce, but Beyonce is never going to be me. Beyonce could not step into a courtroom and try, you know, a case and get a $12 million verdict in, you know, Jefferson County, Alabama. It's not going to happen. So you have to find your thing, but that takes work and that takes looking within and not outside of yourself. And I just, I think that people don't do that enough. We're too busy looking outside, we're too busy looking at what everyone else is doing versus really examining what do I like? What do I love? What really gets me up in the morning? And then folks end up miserable, you know, at jobs that they think they have to have and they have to stay in when those jobs really don't serve them. And Sarah, so I know you are on a mission with the goal of of increasing the percentage of women that try cases. What are some of the things that you're doing to help move that forward? So I am really optimistic that my thought leadership videos and my video vlog will motivate women lawyers, potential and future women trial lawyers, women who are in the practice now and who may be unhappy with what they're doing or who I often have students who will later on, like I may be in a case with them, who will say, I really wish I had taken your classes. I really wish I had tried out for your team. If only I had the training. So part of it is motivating women to find that thing that is within them and have them present that person to the world. Um, The second part, which will be rolled out in couple months or next month are educational modules, because I do think that there is a certain aspect of confidence that comes from knowing the skill set and having that competence. You know, sometimes I tell folks, you know, competence equals confidence. Like when you know, like I know, I know how to cross-examine a witness. And even if that witness is testified for the first time, because I have that skill set, I know that I'm going to be able to do a good job. So the second thing we'll do is have educational modules available for people to watch and learn the skill sets that they need. So the mindset and then the skill set are the two aspects of what I'm trying to accomplish to encourage more women to get in the courtroom. Sarah recently made a polarizing public statement that she is choosing to exclude herself from attending CLEs or serving on panels that lack diversity in an effort to bring awareness to the barriers that many female attorneys and attorneys of color face. I asked her to delve deeper on that decision and to share what she's doing to help bridge the gap. Here's my position on it, and I I think this is important. What I have seen in my travels, in, in attending conferences, is the same people over and over. And what happens is they get those individuals who have the opportunity to showcase their talents and showcase their knowledge and showcase their experience, get the business. They are the ones people look at as the leaders in in a certain field. And so they end up being the ones who who get the referral. And now that I've done it for a while, I'm like, man, I, I have heard you speaking on this same case for the past 10 years. 
Like there, there are some PowerPoints that I have in my CLE folder. It's the same PowerPoint for like the past four years. And what frustrates me with that is I know there are women lawyers and there are lawyers who, who are people of color who have the same skill set and have a different area of knowledge or something else to provide us that we can learn from that are not being tapped into. And part of it is that we, I think, as an industry, lie to ourselves about diversity being our goal. We are not intentional enough in the legal industry about diversity for it to truly be our goal. I think defense firms, it is their goal because they, they there are a lot of women lawyers and black lawyers, lawyers of color who left the traditional practice and went in-house when faced with a lot of discrimination who now kind of hold, hold the keys to the kingdom and demand diversity. But if you're not in a place where, or have a position where you can demand that diversity, then I think, you know, the idea that it's a goal, I just have not seen that. And so the reason why I made that statement is because I understand that, you know, I get 10 emails a day. Can you encourage the lawyers at your firm? Can you encourage the lawyers at your firm? So I wanted to make it clear. I am now in a position where I can influence decisions. And so I wanted to make it clear for all of those planning conferences that I would not be promoting a conference that is not representative of the ideals that I desire in this legal profession. I think women and minorities have been shut out of opportunities because we don't often have the opportunity to showcase ourselves. So that's the long winded answer to that. And I've had, you know, so so I, I am now on three conference committees. I have been invited to three separate conference committees, which is fine. I don't mind doing the work. I don't mind being the voice. Um, but something has to change. It just... I have been practicing for too long to see the same. And you know, you, you know that I'm telling truth because we go to the same like conferences, right? We, you see the same black lawyers. There are like 10 of us at every conference and we have like our little group and we all know we're going. And I just think in this country with the number of lawyers that there are, that just should not be the case. I also believe, I'm a firm believer that our clients deserve representation that reflects the jury pool. And so there are times when you need the voice of someone who can truly speak to that jury, who that jury is looking at like, okay, I know that you understand our experience. I know you understand our community. And, or to tell the stories of our clients. You know, it, it is shocking to me that you look at mass torts panels for products that are aimed at women and the leadership is full of men. It's nonsensical to me. So anyway, so that's my, that, that is my 2021 rant about legal conferences. I love it. And I love, I love that you're doing that because I, I, don't, I don't know that enough people understand why this is important. I think that's one thing when you hear like you two can succeed, you two can be successful, but there's always people. I mean, there's going to be people listening to this podcast. There's people in law school. There's lawyers working at other law firms that unless they see someone that looks like them, they don't 100 percent believe it. Right. They don't believe that that is possible for them. Like I'm a first generation immigrant. You know, no matter what you could tell me when I was when I was younger, if I could not see it with my own eyes, I didn't fully believe it until I could. 
That's right. Especially with the history, you know, of our country. The other thing I'll say is this. I truly believe, and and this has kind of come out, you know, last year was a tumultuous year. But I do think that one gift we were given in 2020 was there are so many people who are done having surface level conversations about race relations in this country. And that's kind of where I am. You know, and I've had I had several friends call me after George Floyd's um, murder and ask me, you know, how I was doing and, and wanted to have, you know, real conversations about how they can educate their children to not, you know, to be anti-racist. And at this juncture, I think we have to be honest with ourselves and, and take a look within. And it's the same thing I said to, you know, folks who called me and said, hey, you know, we would love to have more women and more people of color on our panels, but I don't know anyone. That's a problem. You know, you say that you you want your children to espouse this value, but what do they see? Right. I've never been to your house for dinner. You know, we've been friends for how many years, you know. I I was very intentional about the school my child attended. I wanted it to be racially diverse. So she has white friends and Hispanic friends and Asian friends, right? And and black friends too, right? And and all of these children have, you know, this circle that represents the country. And so when we say this is something we value, we value diversity, we value, you know, having that voice being heard. If you look at your circle, and your circle looks exactly like you, you've got to kind of look in the mirror and say, maybe I'm lying to myself. Maybe I, I don't really value diversity the way I, I say I value diversity. I will never forget the first time I had to have this conversa- uh, conversation about race with Malone. She, one of her best friends from pre-K, I mean, little little kids, came to school and said, hey, and this was kind of like right around, you know, it was right around the election, right before Trump was elected. She said, we cannot be friends anymore. The brown kids have to be friends with the brown kids and the peach kids, which is what her teacher called white kids. Peach kids have to be friends with peach kids. And so I'm driving home and she's in the back seat, and I'm like, how was school today? And she just starts crying. And she said, Mackenzie and I can't be friends anymore because she's peach and I'm brown can I be peach? And it like, it broke my heart. And I was like, let me pull over. Cause this is, you know, a serious conversation with a four-year-old. I said, who, what gave you the idea that peach people and brown people can't be friends? And I was so, the thing I was happy about was that I could say, well, what about Mr. Hoven and Miss Alyssa and Miss Heidi? Th- those are some of my closest friends and they're peach, but then these are my brown friends. And then these are my kind of tan friends. This is what you see. So you know better than to think that you cannot have friends of different colors because you see differently. And she was like, yeah, that's right. What was Mackenzie even talking about? And we should all, you know, if we say we value diversity, we should all be able to have conversations like that with our children. You know, if we say we value diversity, when I say, look, I'm not attending a conference, you should say, you know what? We should invite so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so. But if you don't have people like that, you know, that don't look like you in your circle, I think you're lying to yourself if you're telling yourself that that's something that you truly value. Um, And if it's something that you want to value, then those are hard conversations and and you've got to make some decisions to live differently. 
you and I both know there's a lot of people holding on to the past. Where do you see the future of law heading? Like, what, is, what does the legal industry look like five years from now, 10 years from now? You know, I'm hopeful. I, young folks are interesting. I'm interested to see. I've had some students who are influencer attorneys, which is, is bananas to me. Um, but what I love about millennials is that they will step outside of the box and do things that us old heads just think is crazy. And so I think we will see more of that. I think we will see areas of law pop up that we have no idea would ever exist. And I'm actually excited about that. Like I love um, the idea of people venturing out and creating a path when, you know, the traditional paths are not available to them. And Sarah, with, with all the things that you have going on on a day-to-day basis, I mean, you're you're in the courtroom, you lead a trial team, you're a parent, you're a professor, I mean, all these different things and, and more. What are some of the perhaps daily habits that, you know, that you practice that help to keep you on track? So I actually just read Atomic Habits, which I recommend to everyone. So I will say the one thing that I think centers me is, and obviously I can't do it when I travel, but I try to have a conversation with Malone every day about just, you know, what she did, how things are going. And, and I will tell you, I never wanted to be, I, did, I had not planned on having children, but she has been like the most centering force for me. Like she is my, she's my center. When things are all crazy, you know, I know that I can lay in the bed with her and hold her hand and and read together. I have actually gotten out of it while I was managing, but I am dedicated to every day reading for 30 minutes to an hour with her. You know, we read together and then have our conversation. And that really helps um, me decompress and kind of get away from the fake world and, and kind of back into the real world. We talked about a lot of the thought leadership. There's a lot of people out there giving advice. What's been the best advice you've received? What's been the worst advice you've received? Gosh, I've, I've gotten some really great advice. The best advice, not ever, um, one of the best things, and I, and I like to use this, my mentor in law school used to say, just be the spoon, right? Like do your job, um, do your thing. The spoon can't be the fork. You know, it can't spear things and pick them up. The spoon can't be the knife. It can't cut things, but the spoon has a job to do. And that job is important. So if you just focus on, just be the spoon, just focus on the thing you need to do, the thing that you do and tune out trying to be like anything else. And so that's that's one of the things that has kind of carried me and I try to live by. The worst advice I have ever gotten, not ever gotten, but the worst advice that I've gotten and he's gonna, I know he's going to listen because my daddy listens to like everything I do, which I love you, Pop. But back when I was um, a first year, second year associate, and I was considering leaving my first job to go to another firm to learn a different skill set because I was wanting to handle bigger cases and, and different types of cases um, with more, more at stake. And my dad was like, you're crazy. You know, you have a good job, you're making X amount, you know, that's more than me and your mama make, and you just need to stay there and, you know, just stay there and work your way up. And for me, that was the worst advice. And and I tell students all the time, I, I am a firm believer in you chase skills 
And if that means that you have to leave the place you are in to get a new skill set, then you just have to go, you know? And so I'm so glad I didn't take his advice because interestingly, I left that firm and went to two other firms, learned to become a trucking lawyer, and then was asked to come back to my first firm as a partner. And that's, you know, eventually where we all left and then joined Alex. So had I taken my father's advice, I would not be sitting here. I would not be in this office. I would not have the skills that I need to do this job because I, you know, would have done the same thing for 16 years. And Sarah, as we come to a close, you're certainly a game changer. And this being the Game Changing Attorney podcast, what does being a game changer mean to you? I think a game changer is someone who is not afraid to follow their heart, their mind, their desire, and do a thing that may go against the grain that others may not have succeeded at doing before. And they have the ability to tune out the noise of criticism and focus on accomplishing that thing. And then that thing becomes, you know, the norm and and they're probably off to doing something else. But I think game changers are really, to me, fearless because it takes courage to do the things that people don't expect to succeed. I want to give a huge thank you to Sarah Williams for taking the time to speak with us today. You know, what particularly resonated for me was when Sarah said that you'll go much further by focusing your energy on developing your strengths rather than trying to improve your weaknesses. And that leaning into your authentic self and being open and vulnerable is a surefire way to not only make progress, but ultimately build confidence. You've been listening to the Game Changing Attorney Podcast with me, Michael Mogul. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd really appreciate it if you could share the podcast with at least one other ambitious law firm owner who you believe would benefit. And you know what? Maybe more than one. For more information on our interview with Sarah Williams, see the show notes for this episode in your podcast app or visit GameChangingAttorney.com. And join us next time and we'll be talking to trial champion and senior partner at Newsom Melton, Rich Newsom. To do these complex cases, the cases that can move the needle for public safety or for public policy even, it is a collaborative effort. It's not enough just to read the documents and follow the pleadings and draft the memos. You've got to get on the phone and bring that collective intelligence to to your case. That's next time on the Game Changing Attorney Podcast.